Welcome to Village Church of Gurney Podcast. This week, we continue on in our series, Christ's Cross and Empty Tomb, a study of Luke. And Pastor Brandon will be preaching from Luke 22, 39-53. The name of the sermon is called, When Darkness Reigns. Let's join Pastor Brandon now. So when you're, uh, you're in church and the pastor gets up to preach and he announces that the uh, the title of morning sermon is "When Darkness Reigns." Uh, this is the moment in the service where uh, people start shooting looks out of the corner of their eye at the people sitting next to them, and they're kind of like, "Oh, we're in for a real humdinger today." Uh, as, uh, as Pastor Robbie mentioned, uh, we're uh, we're going to be studying Luke 22, uh, verses 39 through 53 today. It's uh, pages 1048, 1049 in the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, and uh, it's it's a hard passage. Uh, This passage pulls no punches as it starts bringing us into some unspeakably hard hours um, in Jesus' life and ministry. Thankfully, um, even within this hard passage, uh, there are uh, things for us to learn that will uh, indeed be uh, uplifting for us, I believe, because even when you, when you say, when darkness reigns, you have to mark that statement with an asterisk. Uh, because with Jesus, because through Jesus, because of Jesus, darkness is never strong enough to have the final word. We're going to pick up the story in Luke 22, 39. And just by way of review, uh, the Last Supper at this point in the story, the Last Supper is over with. And Jesus is saying unusual things. Jesus is saying cryptic-sounding things. He's telling his disciples that he must suffer. Uh, He's telling his disciples that one of them will betray him. He's he's telling Peter uh, that before sunrise the next morning, Peter is going to deny on three separate occasions that that he even knows Jesus. Jesus is saying things like, guys, get your money, get your backpack. If if you don't have a sword, make sure you get one. And even if that means you got to sell your coats, that you've got money to go buy the sword, do it. Disciples are completely discombobulated right now. They're on edge, they're confused, they, they don't know what's going on, but they know something's going on, and it sounds big. And it's with this as the backdrop that Jesus wraps up things in the, in the upper room of this borrowed house, and then in verse 39, it says, and he, Jesus, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to that place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Going on into verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. As you read the four different gospel accounts, 
uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you'll find that the different gospel authors will pick and choose which details uh, of the story that uh, they uh, want to highlight. Uh, and if we, we want a complete picture of what happened within the life and ministry of Jesus in different situations. Sometimes we have to look at different gospel accounts to, to, to piece together all the details. Uh, for example, Matthew, uh, Matthew's account of this story, Matthew 26, he points out that the particular place on the Mount of Olives that where Jesus went to pray uh, was a garden called Gethsemane. But Luke leaves out that detail. Luke, in his account of this, he focuses particularly on Jesus. And there are things we learn from Luke that we don't see in any other of the gospel accounts. Here's one of those examples in verse 43. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. This is unique to Luke. As Jesus was thinking about the cup of suffering that he was about to, to drink from, so to speak, as Jesus, he was praying to his father that if there was any way, any way possible for something else to happen, aside from what he knew was on the horizon, Father, please make another way. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Then Luke tells us that an angel appears to Jesus. And that angel is, is used by God the Father to bring strength to Jesus. And at this moment in time, Jesus needs every bit of strength possible because Jesus knows what's about to come. And he's in agony, as verse 44 says. And as he's agonizing... And with the strength that he's been given, Jesus prays even more earnestly than ever. And as he's pouring out his soul to his father, Jesus begins to sweat blood. There was an article that ran a number of years ago in the Journal of the American Medical Association about the physical death of Jesus. And one of the things that was described in that article was this phenomenon of sweating blood. It's, it's a very, very rare condition, but it, it does happen. It's something called hematidrosis. And what happens with people suffering from hematidrosis in a moment is, is, is that they're, they're already you know, extremely intensely in an emotional state. And their emotions become so distressed that it begins to affect their, their, their physiology and the lining of their blood vessels begins to, to break down and leak so that blood starts to seep into the sweat glands and a person then begins to, to literally start sweating blood. That's what's happening with Jesus here. As we talk about the, the, the agony of Jesus, what, what must it have been like to be in Jesus' shoes in those moments? And then what must it have been like for Jesus when, when after praying in verse 45, it says, when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. Jesus, when, when he was in sorrow, when he was even in agony, Jesus, he pressed in more to prayer. But the disciples 
When, when, when they were in their own distress, and they, they were distressed, make no mistake about it. They knew something big was about to happen, but the disciples, their sorrow brought them to a place of exhaustion. Jesus brought them with him to pray, but they didn't pray. And so verse 46, Jesus says to them, why, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray so that, echo back to verse 40, you may not enter into temptation. And as Jesus is saying this, now stuff's really about to start happening. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. Now, John's account of this scene in the story, John 18 tells us that Judas, the disciple who betrayed Jesus, Judas has gone off and procured a, a cohort or, or a detachment of soldiers. And then just for good measure, he brings along uh, some officers representing the chief priests and the Pharisees. So what you have here is a group of people definitely numbering in the dozens, possibly numbering in the hundreds, and they're descending en masse upon the Mount of Olives in the middle of the night. And this is literally a group that's carrying torches and pitchforks. John tells us in John 18, this, this cohort of soldiers, they are carrying torches and lanterns and weapons to come and deal with this peasant itinerant teacher. And as the group gets to Jesus, It would have been despicable enough if, if Judas, as, as, as he's leading uh, this, 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 this pack of people, coming. it would have been despicable enough if Judas would have done something like, see, that one over there, that's Jesus, arrest him, that's the one you want. That would have been despicable enough. But instead, he, he comes up to Jesus, and as it continues in verse 47, he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. I hate Judas. No, I, 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 hate, I hate Judas. I hate Judas for a lot of reasons. But there is so much wrapped up in this kiss of betrayal. Um, I, 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 don't have, I don't have the words to describe it. Betray Jesus with a kiss? I hate Judas. But Jesus knows what's coming. In verse 48, Jesus says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, all this is going on. You've got the rest of the disciples watching, and their heart, their heart rates must have been going at about 200 beats a minute this point. They're already confused. They're already on edge. And now they're seeing this posse rolling in that's been sent out to do who knows what to Jesus. But, but whatever it is, they know there's nothing good about it. Verse 49 says, and, and when those who were around him saw what would follow. And it's in that moment that these on-edge disciples say, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? 
Now, you remember from the upper room where, where Jesus had told his disciples, you know, buy a sword, you know, sell your cloak if you need the money for it? Well, apparently the disciples still have swords on the brain. And, and they're thinking, this is our hour to fight. Because the way that this sentence was originally spoken and how it's recorded here in Luke, it, it doesn't convey that they're asking Jesus for permission to do this. It doesn't convey, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? What's intended here, the tone of this statement, it's almost like it's a rhetorical question. Like the disciples have already made up their minds what the answer is going to be. They're not asking Jesus for permission. They're telling Jesus that they're about to act. And, and even before Jesus ha has the chance to answer, and I'm sorry, this, this is where the story almost starts to dis descend into unintentional comedy. Uh, you, you have this utterly tragic situation unfolding. And you have the disciples. You almost, have to, you almost have to laugh to keep from crying. Think about this. You, you have a detachment of Roman soldiers. Numbering in the dozens, if not the hundreds. They have torches and weapons. And how many disciples do you have left on the side of the good guys? Eleven. If you're going to throw it down, have a rumble with the Roman army in the middle of the night, those aren't very good odds. But, all right, let's, let's, let's give the disciples the benefit of the doubt for just a moment because, okay, with God is on our side, you know, you've heard one, one plus God is majority. Let, let's give them the benefit of the doubt for a moment, okay? But there, there's more. Lord, shall we strike with the sword? These swords that they're talking about. Now, th this isn't like... You know, you picture the three musketeers and they pull their sword out of their sheath and it's like on guard and, and, and it's, it's a duel and, and they're using their three, three to four foot long. Now, th this is something that is, it, it's, it's a short sword, something that would be more uh, like maybe a dagger uh, from our frame of reference. Uh, and it's something that you would typically use for defense. Lord, shall we strike with the sword? That's... That's offense. So you're using a defensive weapon to play offense. This is what you're going into battle with against the Roman army? But all right, let's, let's give them the benefit of the doubt for a moment. Because, hey, if you truly believe God is on your side, who needs a full arsenal of weapons? There's more. Verse 50, again, before Jesus has a chance to get into word edgewise, it says, and one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Now, Luke doesn't name names here. But in, in John 18, John does. And John completely throws Peter under the bus with this. He names Peter, and he names the servant of the high priest who Peter strikes. It's, it's a man named Malchus. But, but Luke specifies that Peter cut off Malchus's right ear. Why would Dr. Luke find it important to include this detail? That's where I, I've, I've recruited somebody to come and help me with this. Finn, come on up. 
Um, Finn's one of our students in our middle school group. Recruited is maybe putting it a little bit generously. Uh, Finn got a $5 gift card from Culver's uh, for coming to help me with this. And uh, come on over here. Um, so, all right, so here's, here, here's, here's, here's what's going on. Uh, so, you know, I want you to meet, meet Malchus. And, and right now, I'm Peter, and I am doing concealed carry up here this morning. This, this is my weapon, okay? Um, Malchus's right ear was cut off. Now, now, now stop and think about this. Okay, now, if, if, if you're Malchus, and someone comes up to you with, with a short sword... They're going to have to be pretty close to you if they're going to do something to strike off your right ear. Now, okay, Malchus, are you just going to stand there and allow me to, to strike any part of your body, much less your ear? Are you just going to stand there and take that from me? I, I would hope not. I, you, you have a lot of options in front of you. You, you, can, you can duck and roll like a ninja. You can, you, you can, as I'm striking, you can give me a punch to the gut here and fight back. You might even have your own weapon, uh, defensive weapon, that you could use to protect yourself uh, you know, from, from this attack. You, you don't have to stand there and, and, and take this from me. But we still see in the story that, that Malchus's right ear was, was struck. Now let's talk about Peter. If, if, if I'm Peter, okay, and if I'm wanting to do harm to someone with, with, with my short sword, with my defensive weapon, and I'm at point-blank range, and the best I can do is cut off somebody's ear? Huh? Huh? No. Again, it, it's the right ear. I, I, I've, I've got to come across. How, how am I even going to, 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 to strike this if I'm facing him? Ooh, but if I'm sneaking up from behind, I've got a little bit more to aim at, but I, you still haven't answered the question. I'm sneaking up on somebody, and the best I can do to, to harm him is to cut off his right ear? What's possibly, even probably, happening here is that big, tough Peter, the one who once said, I will follow you, Lord, to the death is probably doing something like this. <laughs> or he's doing something like this. <clears throat> Whatever is going on here, big tough Peter, the guy who talked such a good talk about his allegiance and devotion to Jesus, when the chips were down, Peter's devotion and allegiance to Jesus was clumsy, it was cowardly, it was misguided, and to put it kindly, it was ineffective.
Then if you ever want to be a stunt double in a Marvel movie, you can put this on your resume, okay? You did a good job. Thanks, buddy. All right. Way to go. Thank you. But again, if you're Peter, you've just attacked. I'm using the word attack kindly. You've attacked a servant of the high priest. You've got a detachment of Roman soldiers there to witness it. As clumsy as your efforts were, I mean, what's your motivation? Maybe you're thinking that this is the moment that Jesus is going to usher in his earthly kingdom. And who was the one who took the step to get the dominoes falling? If you're Peter, what are you expecting to hear Jesus say to you in this moment? Blessed art thou, Simon Peter, for thy courage and thy devotion to me. You think, oh, stop, Jesus, you're embarrassing me. No. Now, what does Jesus say? Verse 51, knock it off. Verse 51, Jesus said, no more of this. And Jesus, he, you know, picks up Malchus's bloody ear, takes a little bit of the dirt off, puts it back on, heals Malchus. What's going through Malchus's mind during all this, by the way? It's going through Peter's mind as he's watching this. You want to talk about Jesus, though, having a captive audience? As he's about to speak to his confused, cowardly disciples, with these, these dozens upon dozens of Roman soldiers listening, Jesus says in verse 52, he speaks very specifically to the chief priests, it says, and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him. Jesus says, have you come out against have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. New Living Translation renders that last sentence as, but this is your moment, the time when the power of darkness reigns. And then the New International Version simply says, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. All right, let's pause here. Um, you've heard this before. Let's say you're, you're, you're watching a ball game, you're watching a movie, but you already know the outcome of what you're watching. The game, the movie, whatever the case is, but, but you, it's, it's at this moment of, of high tension, of high drama, but for you as you're watching it, as things unfold, um, if, if you already know how it's going to work out, okay, maybe it's not as tense as it would be otherwise. Because if, if you don't know what's going to happen, if you don't know the ending, you, I mean, your tension can be just through the roof. We're here 21st century. We're going through Luke. We know how the story unfolds. We know how things end. We know the ultimate outcome that, that in Luke's gospel, you know, Jesus, Jesus wins. But at this moment in time, here in Luke, the disciples don't know that. Right now, it looks really bad. 
Right now, it looks like all hope is lost. Right now, it even looks like Jesus is throwing in the towel and giving up. He's surrendering. And so when Jesus says, when darkness reigns for the disciples, that feels all too true in the moment. Because all along, Jesus has been telling his disciples what's going to happen. But they didn't understand it. Jesus' disciples had been given the main building blocks of the plot. Not not all the details, but the important ones. And they just couldn't understand it. Jesus would say things like, well, the, the Son of Man is going to suffer. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed. Huh? There's even one point that Jesus says this and Peter responds. He says, no, Lord, this shall never happen to you. That that, that earns Peter a a stern rebuke from Jesus. So you have this moment in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus says, he's saying this, this gathered crowd, this is your hour when darkness reigns. And right now for Jesus' followers, it seems like that all hope is lost. Even when they've been told ahead of time that darkness is never going to be strong enough to have the final word. Now, we can here look at these disciples. Here We're here 20 centuries later. We, we could feel sorry for them. Oh, my goodness, that must have been so hard to go through. That must have been so hard to live through. There might be others of us that almost play Monday morning quarterback. We start breaking down a okay, keyboard. The disciples miss something. Where, okay, it's plain as day obvious to us what, what they should have done or how they should have handled it, but how, how could you not see it? We can stand back and we can, we can look at the, 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 these clumsy, misguided ways that they, they tried to live out their devotion to Jesus. And, and I'm not saying that there isn't necessarily a place for, for doing these types of things, but let's turn the tables and think about our own situation today. Hasn't Jesus told us how the story of history is going to unfold? Hasn't Jesus told us that someday he's going to return to earth to establish his kingdom? Hasn't Jesus told us that that someday the power of sin and death and Satan, it's going to be vanquished forever? And hasn't he told us that someday there's going to be no more pain, no more, more sorrow, no more sickness, no more heartache? Because God's work of salvation will have reached its full completion? We've been told ahead of time what the outcome of the story is going to be. But boy, oh boy, when when, when we find ourselves and and we're just up to our eyeballs with life and circumstances in this messed up world and just everywhere you look, it just feels like that you're living through an hour when darkness reigns. Have you ever found yourself in those moments thinking that God's promises just don't make sense? or even wondering if God's promises are even true? Have you ever found yourself um, wanting to take control of a situation or relationship when when things just feel like that they're getting turned all upside down and and, and you've got to step in to fix it? We will all go through times when it feels like darkness has the upper hand. We're going to go through times when it feels like all hope is lost. 
And it may even in those times seem like that Jesus is just standing by passively, just allowing things to happen that don't make a lick of sense. These things, there's nothing good about them. They're, 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 they're wrong, they're unjust, they're evil. It's a human reaction at that point in time for us to, to want things to be more clear, to want to feel like that we're more in control. But what the gospel shows us, what the example of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane shows us, is that even when, when, when there is this, this yearning, this, this hunger to have greater clarity or to have greater control, what we actually need is greater trust. Because even when things are at their worst, even in the times when darkness reigns, even then, darkness is still never strong enough to have the final word. This is an example of what can happen when um, we, when we pursue control instead of trust. Let, let's say that this water bottle represents you know, something or someone uh, that's, that's important to you in your life. And, and let's just say for the you know, sake of the story that um, circumstances involving this something or someone, uh, it just feels like something's coming unglued. If, if, if what you have in your hand, if what you're holding on to, if this isn't tighten your grasp and, and it feels like things around you are getting, you know, and say, well, what's your instinct? You're, you're going to grip it more tightly. Are you holding on to it tight enough? What, what, what if something else happens and it's going to come and either in reality or in your imagination, it feels like it's going to, going to try and take this away from you and make things more uncertain? Well, you're, you're, you're going to grab onto it even tighter. And you're going to grab on even tighter and even tighter and even tighter. And look, hey, it, it's in your control. You've got it. But what have you done to it in the process? Have you ever done something like that before? I know I have. Actually, it's one of the things you're going to talk about in your small groups this week with your discussion questions. Folks, it is a lifelong process to learn how to entrust the things that are nearest and dearest to us to the hand of Jesus. And it's particularly hard to do this when it feels like darkness is getting the upper hand. It feels like darkness is getting the upper hand with, with, with people we love. Let's say, you know, with you know, something going on with, with, with our kids or uh, grandkids, with a, a spouse, a sibling, uh, a family member far from the Lord, a, a friend of ours who's dealing with some sort of chronic struggle. There's this side we want to look at it. We say, stop, and I want to jump in and help. And again, there's, there's, there's a place for that. But, but what can happen is that we can clutch onto them for all we're worth. And part of that, yeah, we care, but part of it, it's really, it's about us and us wanting to feel more in control. And then in, in, in the process of doing this, 
What are we doing? We're, we're, we're suffocating them. We're, we're, we're choking the life out of them. Not saying that we overcorrect and just, you know, abandon them and leave them all, you know, kick them to the curb. But, but boy, if, if, if we're holding on this tightly, are, are we leaving proper room for God to work in, in someone's life in, in ways that in the moment might not fully make sense to us just yet? Here's another one. Let's, let's say that we're looking more broadly and we're looking at things in, in, in society. We're looking at things in our nation. And it feels like darkness is getting the upper hand. And we can see it and we want to say, stop, no more. And there is a place for that. But, but, okay, let, let, let's say that our response to this is that we want to take, we're going to take the, the plunge into the deep end of the culture wars. Pick a side, any side. And we end up representing Jesus in ways that give off more heat than light. Because we've given into the misguided notion that, that if we want to get things back under control in this messed up world, well, boy, we, we've got to go all out to win the culture wars. And then we go down this path of fighting this war in a worldly way, in a way that ends up dishonoring and damaging the reputation of Jesus. And we bring harm to the cause of the gospel. When we think we're actually doing a favor, we, we think, well, of course, of course God is on my side. Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Figuratively speaking. In what ways would Jesus correct his followers today and, and say to us, no more of this? You see, what Luke's gospel teaches us is that even when it seems like darkness reigns, darkness will never be strong enough to get the upper hand. And even in the moment when things seemed the darkest, when, when Jesus seemed like he was giving himself up, when it seemed like all hope was lost, it was at that moment that God was actually very powerfully at work. In this case, making a way for our sins to be forgiven through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. The gospel shows us, Jesus shows us, even here in the garden, that in the hardest of times, darkness is never strong enough to get the upper hand. And a life that's anchored in the hope of the gospel doesn't reach for greater clarity. It doesn't grasp for greater control. It follows the example of Jesus in pursuing patient, prayerful trust. Come what may in our lives, come what may in our nation, anything, when it seems like darkness reigns, darkness is never, never strong enough to get the upper hand. And there will be moments where things seem terribly dark, but if God can work through the betrayal and the arrest and the flogging and the crucifixion and the death of Jesus in ways that are still faithful to his promises, 
in ways that bring about lasting good, eternal good, in, in ways that bring great glory to his great name, well, then I trust that he'll be able to do that in your life and in my life and even in the dark times that we live in. I don't know how he'll do it. I don't have clarity on that. I don't have control over that. I, I, I am learning to trust him in those times. And I need your help, you know, for me as I'm on that journey, and I, I want to help you as you're on that journey. Let, let's, let's remind one another to remember God's promises, to remember that there will be a day when all of the pain, when all of the confusion, when all of the, 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 the hurt and the junk of this world is going to become an afterthought. Because just as God has been faithful to all of these promises in the past. You can take it to the bank. That he's going to be faithful to that one as well. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up right now. A lot of times as we uh, uh, transition out of the sermon time and into a, a song of response, um, you know, those of us who are, who are preaching will, uh, will lead in some sort of pastoral prayer. Uh, today, instead, what I want to do is just provide... Uh, just just for, for, for a minute or two of um, silent prayer. Um, I'm not sure where you know, any of you, all of you are at um, as it relates to um, this need for pursuing patient, prayerful trust. Um, I just want to just give you some time just to, just to pray. Um, as you pray, Take time to listen as well to how uh, the Spirit of God, uh, whether it's through something from this morning's message or some other way that he may impress something upon you to bring encouragement, to bring uh, maybe even conviction. But um, let's just take some time for some silent prayer. Thank you for listening to Village Church of Gurney's podcast. If you would like to know more about Village Church, you can go to our Facebook page under Village Church of Gurney or go to www.bcgurney.org.